You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. One day after the release of a bombshell report detailing financial mismanagement at BC Housing and its largest housing provider, the board of directors of Atira is digging in, releasing a statement defending its CEO and senior management. As Richard Zussman reports, the province says that response is not good enough. The damning amount of misuse of public funds. A scandal not going away. My hope was that it wouldn't be business as usual uh, over at Atira. But Atira isn't backing down. A day after an audit found CEO Janice Abbott in a conflict of interest, the board vowing to support her. Atira's board of director remains confident that its CEO and senior management will guide the organization through these challenges, reads a statement, and make required improvement to Atira's operations and administration. The minister, not impressed. The CEO says she hasn't even read it. Um, it, uh, it shows uh, a level of um, lack of concern for the information that's been provided. Abbott and the board have not responded to more than half a dozen interview requests. The conflict involves Shane Ramsey, her husband, and former BC Housing CEO. Atira is BC Housing's largest housing provider. The province is still planning to cut off Atira's new funding and inspect all the provider's buildings. We're going to make sure that uh, every dollar that's being spent from the public is being spent in the, in the way that it was intended to. And now there are new allegations. Global News has obtained documents dating back to 2014, when the previous government was warned of another conflict of interest issue on housing. This at a property called Stamps Place. Atira originally deemed non-compliant in a housing submission and then initially disqualified. Ultimately told, they were then considered qualified. After allegations, Ramsey got involved. In the end, Atira was not rewarded the contract for the project in Vancouver. It was the previous government that actually hired BDO, the accounting firm. That BDO report Kevin Falcon mentions was commissioned back in 2017 and only leaked out in 2022. When it comes to this forensic audit, Falcon says the government also held on to it far too long. One of the most puzzling parts about this entire situation is that David Eby, while he was the minister responsible, saw fit to increase the funding to Atira by several hundred percent. Part of Atira's pushback is also a promise to release full accounting records not yet public in an attempt to protect their reputation. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Now, according to its 2021 impact report, the Atira Women's Resource Society operates just over 1,600 units of social housing. Almost all of them are SRO hotel rooms. 52 are self-contained micro-units. The organization provides housing to more than 2,200 people. In 2021, Atira reported revenue of $75.8 million and expenses of $71.8 million. Keith Baldry joins us now with more on this. Keith, for all the fireworks in the legislature recently and the fact that a lot of these problems happened under Premier Eby's watch or when he was the housing minister. It doesn't seem to be impacting his public approval ratings at all. 
Yeah, at least not yet. A poll out today by Research Co. shows again that even though the NDP's been in power for five and a half years, showing no signs of losing that popularity, also reflecting the fact that BC Liberals have gone from being BC Liberals to BC United, that name hasn't stuck with the public yet. Here's the findings of a poll conducted the last few days before the fireworks over the housing report. NDP well out in front of 46% of the decided vote. That's actually up two points from February. Uh, BC United down three points from at 33%. That's a 13-point gap, which is significant. The Greens are unchanged, no change there at 16%. BC Conservatives not tracking anywhere near. They like to see with a new leader and John, uh, 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 with uh, a new leader there. Uh, approval ratings, David Eby has to like this 59%, no change from February. Sonia Furstenau is actually ahead of Kevin Falcon. But again, the name change here might be the, the situation the BC United is finding, not resonating with the public quite yet. Mario Canseco, the pollster here, says it can't help but take away the NDP and David Eby have a bit of a Teflon effect when it comes to public opinion. It would certainly look like there's a Teflon effect going on after David Eby became premier. Uh, his numbers haven't really botched. He still has a high number of residents who are happy with his leadership. Certainly a situation where those who were expecting the NDP to drop after the retirement of John Horgan, uh, it's not something that has materialized yet. So BC United has to be a little concerned with a couple other findings. Women voters favor the NDP by a two-to-one margin over BC United and Kevin Falcon. And also the party's not tracking very well in the Fraser Valley region. A smaller subsample, you can't draw too much uh, conclusions from it. But again, it obviously shows BC United has a major campaign ahead of it to change its brand and change it effectively and make it more well-known with the voters of BC before the next election mm -hmm. in the fall of 2024. And we'll see if they can accomplish that. Keith, thanks very much. Vancouver police are issuing a warning and an appeal for tips from the public after a series of recent sex assaults. Our Travis Prasad joins us now with more of the details here. And Travis, VPD are releasing some images of this suspect. That's right, Chris. They're hoping the public can help advance this investigation with those images. Vancouver police say since April 27th, four women have reported being groped from behind while walking at night. All four of these incidents happened near BC Place and Rogers Arena. Two of them happening near the intersection of Beattie and Georgia, another near Georgia and Hamilton, and another near Pender and Abbott Streets. In all cases, police say the women were between 25 and 40 years old and happened to be walking alone after 9 p.m. The VPD Sex Crimes Unit has spent several days canvassing the area and are now releasing images of a suspect. They say he's about 5 feet 5 inches tall and appears to be in his 30s. He had glasses and a mustache at the time of the reported assaults. This is a significant public safety concern. If we've got a stranger who's walking around after dark in a heavily populated area, um, randomly sexually assaulting, um, women who are alone, that's a, that's a very big concern for us, so we're thankful that uh, uh, the women in these cases did come forward uh, and enable us to, to launch an investigation. We're now hoping that we'll be able to conclude that investigation by identifying the person that we believe is responsible for these crimes. Police say offenses like this often go unreported. Any additional victims out there are asked to come forward and report it to police. And anyone who recognizes that suspect should contact the VPD immediately. Chris. All right, Travis, thanks very much for that. Travis Prasad reporting for us tonight. A Metro Vancouver police inspector has launched a lawsuit against the RCMP after he was wrongly identified as a suspect and mauled by an RCMP dog while off duty. As Catherine Urquhart reports, two years later, 
He's still dealing with the trauma of the incident. Inspector Menjinder Sinkela is a well-respected police officer with the municipal force in Metro Vancouver. Now, following a bizarre incident, the high-ranking cop has filed a lawsuit for battery, negligence, and breach of statutory duties. This after he was mauled by a police dog with the RCMP's Lower Mainland Integrated Police Dog Service. I think it's fair to say that this circumstance is this plaintiff's nightmare. He's dedicated his entire working career to law enforcement, and he knows that the overwhelming majority of law enforcement do their job well and safely. The incident happened in May 2021 at about 9.30 p.m. Kayla was off duty in his driveway outside his Surrey home. Suddenly, he heard a crash, saw a pickup on his neighbor's lawn, then a white man and woman running. The civil suit says three or four officers and an off-leash service dog were in pursuit. Kayla, himself a former dog handler, claims he yelled several times, I'm not involved, it wasn't me. The plaintiff's next awareness was of a police officer on top of him. Then, the plaintiff heard an officer issue a command to the German Shepherd. And in direct response, to which the dog bit and mauled the plaintiff's left leg and calf. It's his evidence that the police dog showed no interest in him. It appeared to him to be pursuing the airborne scent of the actual suspect elsewhere and away from him says the bite wounds and lacerations to his left leg required 12 to 14 staples, leaving permanent scarring, with injuries to his ankle, calf, back, and shoulders, requiring ongoing treatment. It has caused him sleep disturbance, PTSD, and anxiety. The question will be whether punitive damages are merited to express the court's condemnation of what's happened to denounce police brutality. Kayla is suing Constable Sarbjeet Singh, a Delta police dog handler who at the time was seconded to the RCMP. He's also suing RCMP Constable Paul Baker, the Corporation of Delta and the Minister of Public Safety and Solicitor General. Defendants have 21 days to respond to the claim and the allegations have not been proven in court. An investigation by BC's Independent Investigations Office is ongoing. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. The war of words continues tonight between the city of Surrey and the B.C. government over policing. In an exclusive interview, Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke says she's still waiting for more information. The province, though, says the ball is in Surrey's court. And as Janet Brown reports, amid all of it, Locke says her council's decision to stick with the RCMP hasn't changed. My message is to uh, Mr. Farnworth. Uh, he gave thank you for giving us two options. We chose to stick with the RCMP and we will. Locke says almost two weeks since Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth made his recommendation for Surrey to continue the transition to a municipal police force, the city has still not received the nearly 500-page unredacted report. Pages 335 to 503 redacted. We still have uh, not heard anything from uh, Minister Farnworth. 12 pages here. For his part, Farnworth says the report will be coming. We're just now waiting for the city of uh, Surrey's signatures uh, on the uh, non-disclosure agreement and they will receive the, the unredacted report. 
Locke says the city has not yet received the non-disclosure agreements yet. And she says while Farnworth made mention of financial assistance for the transition, which could be up to $30 million a year over five years, Locke says there is no indication the money is actually there. All of the discussion around money has never, ever come to the city of Surrey. We have never had one piece of paper with regards to the money. Farnworth says nothing has changed when it comes to the money. We've indicated that uh, there's a willingness to put uh, enough financial resources on the table. Um, we've been, you know, I think very upfront in that regard. Meanwhile, Locke says former RCMP Deputy Commissioner Peter German has been hired by the city to help navigate the way forward. Our message is today nothing's changed. We are still going to keep the RCMP in the city of Surrey. Janet Brown. Global News. The heart of Vancouver's Gastown neighborhood could soon be car free. A Vancouver City Councilor is tabling a motion that would see Water Street pedestrian only at least part of the year. As Grace Key reports, though, businesses in the area are giving mixed reaction. Vancouver's historic Gastown has seen better days. The city is trying to transform it into a people-focused, vibrant neighborhood. One proposal, make Water Street car-free or car-light on a seasonal or year-round basis. One tour bus company has some concerns. We do take our tours through Gastown, so where are we going to take our tours now? Are we going to have to uh, go up to another street and pull them down? But, you know, where are we going to go? And it's, you know, it's a big part of the tour. It's the oldest part of Vancouver. Inform Interiors likes the idea of car-free Sundays, but anything more long-term and permanent would be a concern. Most of the businesses get their deliveries in the front because the lanes are highly compromised. Um, and the lanes can't be blocked by trucks because people are accessing their um, homes from their parkades on the lane. So the beer truck, the food truck, the, all the trucks are on the street. How does that work? Some restaurant owners on Water Street welcome the idea, saying it would bring additional business to the area. I come from Europe, where a lot of the streets you know, uh, are that way, you know, where people walk in there, there is plants, there is life, there is uh, tables, people eat on the street, they have a conversation, they stop, they meet with everybody, and I think it will be a great idea here for Vancouver as well. Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young is introducing the motion. It would also include working with the Gastown Business Improvement Society to pilot a car-free shutdown during a month or on select weekends this or next summer. That would give people a chance to feel what it's like, um, get a sense of you know the benefits, any issues or challenges to work out. The motion also contemplates um, longer term changing Cordova from a one-way flow to a two-way flow um, that would enable that traffic to get in and out of the area. Also really important to support our tourism sector, but um, Gastown could become much more of a tourism draw. The motion would also direct staff to start urgently needed street repairs and look into more outdoor patios, activities and events. Council is expected to vote on the motion on Wednesday. Grace Key, Global News. Some nervous driving along a notorious stretch of Highway 99. It's where five people died in a landslide caused by the atmospheric river of 2021. And yesterday, another section was shut down as a precaution. The long-term plan to keep it safe, next on the News Hour. You don't know when it's going to be hitting. Uh, you need to be prepared. A new study that should be a wake-up call up and down the West Coast later. Plus... With the windshield right here, it's going to have a split. After a lifetime building cool cars, 
why this might be the last project for Cliff's Tin Shop. That's coming up later in This is BC as well. But right now, concerns about mudslides forced the closure of the same stretch of Highway 99 where five people were killed in a landslide during the 2021 Atmospheric River. And as Amada Gahi reports, last night's closure is raising questions about improvements that need to be done along that road. The beauty of this stretch of highway, the Duffy Lake Road between Pemberton and Lillooet is undisputed. But its proximity to peaks and rivers comes with the likelihood of dangerous rock and mudslides. Living here, I'm quite used to it, honestly. The, it's just the location and you pick where you live and sometimes these things happen. So it's pretty treacherous a road and very steep. Lots in the wintertime, there's lots of ice and snow. The risk of mudslides leading to the most recent overnight closure of Highway 99. Monday night for almost 12 hours. It was closed. Kind of get it. I mean, there's a lot of rock sides and everything along the way. I think it's just for safety. But it's not just bad weather that makes this road susceptible to slides. Allegations of mismanaged and improperly deactivated locking roads in the area are the subject of a planned class action lawsuit against the government's Transportation and Infrastructure Ministry. Robert Gibbons is representing the daughter of Mirsad and Anita Hatsik, two of the five people killed in a destructive mudslide on Highway 99 during an atmospheric river event in 2021. The highway system should be as, as safe as possible because of all of the people that use it. And the Supreme Court of Canada has recognized that for decades, that there is an overriding duty of care of safety to those people. The minister Tuesday said there has been extensive work to climate-proof other routes in the province like the Coquihalla, Number 1 and Highway 8. We're still doing work to improve the infrastructure and build it to a resilient standard so it can uh, survive uh, climate-related extreme weather events uh, in the future. So 99 is on the list. There has been work done there that will continue. Meaning those living there and people who paid the ultimate price will have to wait to see these improvements on Highway 99. The family members can't get their loved ones back, but they certainly don't want this to happen to anybody else. Emadagahi, Global News. And in a timely way, it's emergency preparedness week, and rescue teams are taking the opportunity to brush up on some of their skills. Search! Canine training is a top priority for the Vancouver Fire Rescue Service and the Heavy Urban Search and Rescue Team. The dogs Axel, Cooper, Zeus, Winston and Millie are all going through the exercises with their handlers. They're sniffing out humans in boxes or searching for humans in a pile of rubble. Training that can save lives. It's vital. We need to do this training at least once every two weeks, but each handler trains with their dog daily, whether it's agility, obedience, uh, just basic behaviors and uh, training, uh, uh, drive building, that kind of stuff. Really reminding people to have a grab-and-go bag uh, for 72 hours, um, including food, water, medication, so you're able to have those uh, in event of a major disaster. It's a good reminder to be prepared and have a plan as first responders can be tied up focusing their efforts on high-risk areas during disasters and you may be on your own for up to 72 hours. Coming up, protecting children from online predators. The numbers are definitely shocking. 
child exploitation investigators find a staggering increase in crimes. What's key to stopping it coming up? And how the owners of a townhouse slammed by a semi have been victimized again and again. Good evening and good news over here at the Knight Street Bridge. Cleared a truck with a flat tire northbound at the north end recently and traffic is fully recovered. Today's Lotto Max jackpot is an estimated $28 million. Lotto Max, stream to the max. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Knight Street Bridge. RCMP officers say there's been an alarming spike in child exploitation cases online. The case count more than doubled in 2022, and this year we're on track to double it again. Krista Dow has more on what parents need to know to make sure their kids are safe online. They have become a standard tool for communication and expression. But beyond the positive connection, social media platforms can often be used for more sinister motives. It is the sad and harsh reality that we live in right now in our online world where there are dangers. The BC RCMP's Integrated Child Exploitation Unit, or BC ICE, providing a reality check on just how dangerous. And the numbers are startling. In 2021, the BC ICE team received more than 4,600 reports of online child exploitation. The following year, cases doubled with more than 9,600 reports. And already this year in 2023, within the first three months of the year, between January and March, there are nearly 6,000 reports of exploitation. If this trend continues, we could see the number of cases double again from last year. A lot of the cases that we do see in BC ICE are a lot of abuse reports that happen on social media platforms that um, I use on the day-to-day. -day. Um, things as popular as Facebook and Instagram. It was justice for Amanda. Carol Todd unfortunately knows this all too well. Her daughter Amanda took her own life in 2012. Her tormentor, Aidan Coben, was sentenced to 13 years convicted of sextorting the BC teen. Todd says parents need to arm themselves with more information and report it. I want the numbers to increase because that means that people are reporting. And reporting is the only way to get that information, that knowledge out. Experts are reminding parents to keep communicating with their kids, be aware of things like new gifts they can't afford or strangers they're talking to. Always have those talks with your kids and build that relationship up. RCMP say any space where there's a chat application is where predators can lurk and parents need to be on alert. Krista Dow, Global News. And we'll start off with a warning about our next story. Some of the details might be disturbing for some viewers. The trial of a man accused of killing a Burnaby girl in 2017 has heard testimony from a doctor who took part in the autopsy. Ramina Dea reports. The jury heard the teenager's brain was examined during the autopsy, which took place the day after her half-naked body was found in Burnaby Central Park almost six years ago. Neuropathologist Dr. Stephen Yip testified that initially there were no fractures or obvious injuries to the naked eye. But two weeks later, upon further examination, Yip concluded the injury to the teen's brain was consistent with hypoxic ischemia, a lack of oxygen or blood flow. The teen probably unconscious but still alive for roughly 30 minutes 
to an hour before the loss of oxygen or blood flow, said Yip. But we still don't know the cause of death. Dr. Yip could not tell the jury what exactly killed the teen. Crown's theory, the accused, Ibrahim Ali, strangled the girl to death in the course of sexually assaulting her. Crown says Ali's DNA was found inside the team, adding they were strangers to each other. Ali has told the jury with conviction he did not kill the team. He has pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder. Defense says the teen was depressed. And according to a police statement from her school friend, the teen tried to kill herself because her parents were divorcing. New details surfacing Tuesday afternoon. Defense says he's sure a homeless person came from the scene where the body was found, which was supposed to have been protected by police. Crown objected. The trial continues Wednesday. Romina Dea, Global News. The Kelowna family is enduring a string of bad luck that's almost hard to fathom. Last month, their townhome was badly damaged when a semi-trailer truck plowed into it, forcing the family of five to vacate indefinitely. Now, thieves have broken in and ransacked the property not once, but twice in the same day. The stress, just, we can't sleep, we can't eat. It took us a month to kind of get our minds straight. And now for your, for your personal valuables to get affected, it seems like there was, you know, people drinking and just throwing cans on the ground. We're really feeling it for our victims. They're, I mean, they're victims and then they're victims and then they're victims again, and it's unfortunate, but we have increased our patrols till we can get that building secured. The security company hired to protect the site is defending itself, saying there are multiple entrances and the guard can't always see if anyone is inside. A new company is being brought in and the owners are pushing for live video surveillance. A man has been arrested and charged in connection with a massive fire at the Penticton Toyota dealership almost exactly a year ago. On May 5th, a uh, Penticton resident, uh, Donald Lorenzetto, uh, was uh, charged with arson and mischief over $500,000. And that was in relation to the May 11th, uh, 2022 Penticton Toyota arson. The fire broke out in the early hours of May 11th last year and quickly spread. Plumes of smoke were visible all over the city. It took several hours for crews from Penticton and Summerland to put it out. And according to police, Lorenzetto was one of two suspects identified shortly after the incident. He was arrested and charged on Monday. Coming up, planning for the day the big one hits. You want to know where not to build in the future. A new tsunami risk assessment for the B.C. coast. How much time you'd have to run for higher ground. Traffic is steady in both directions over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge tonight and even minimal volume on the east-west connector through Richmond. Contact Kermac for expert windshield repair and replacement services while supporting Kermac Cares for Kids. Kermac is celebrating 50 years of collision and auto glass services. Choose the best. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. A new study predicts that if a major offshore earthquake happened, it would only be a matter of minutes before a tsunami could potentially reach the coast of Vancouver Island. As Kylie Stanton reports, the research is a useful planning tool for the communities that would be hardest hit. They say it's not a matter of if, but when a large tsunami will reach the coast of B.C. 
And if history is any indication, the results could be catastrophic. But a new study out of Ocean Networks Canada shows new modelling which could help reduce the risk. What we've done here is to basically provide a lot more accuracy in terms of what could happen, where exactly will the water uh, come to shore, how far in shore, how far in land. Here it shows the how waves is propagating. According to the research, a hypothetical wave triggered by a magnitude 9 earthquake in the Cascadia subduction zone would take a matter of minutes, not hours, to reach the shore. In communities like Cayucat, it could hit the coast in less than 30 minutes, reaching a height of almost 6 meters, followed by run-up on the land that could exceed 12 meters in elevation. Some of the communities at the end of the inlets, like Tassus and Zabales, those are the communities that are experiencing uh, higher uh, wave amplitudes. The closer it moves to the mainland, the more time to prepare. An estimated two to three hours before it would land in Boundary Bay. What's meant to help inform emergency planning for all coastal communities. And of course, ultimately for the long-term planning, you want to know where not to build in the future. The research is part of a coast hazard assessment framework. And for the first time, Ocean Networks Canada is engaging First Nations in the process, combining teachings passed down through generations with the science. When the ocean covered all the land, we survived three of them in our history. The more prepared we are, the less fear we should have. Now the question is what the province plans to do with the information. We do work with, uh, uh, with communities on their tsunami preparedness needs. Um, in some cases it may be uh, sirens and in other cases it could be structures. It's a matter of time before we find out if we've done enough. But just how long we have is anyone's guess. Kylie Stanton, Global News. In health matters tonight, in the Okanagan, Vernon is launching an effort to make it more inclusive for seniors. Vernon is a popular retirement destination. More than a quarter of its population is over the age of 65. So the city is now in the process of creating an age and dementia-friendly community plan. The program will address everything from physical infrastructure like transportation and public buildings to less tangible factors like how seniors are included in society. Staying connected to people that you care about, staying involved in activities that interest you, having a voice in what's happening in your community for as long as you want to. Paths aren't all paved, there's sometimes gravel, and that's an issue. In the winter, we make sure we have to keep the snow cleared from all the bus stops. A lot of seniors use bus transit. So things that seem like little things to most people can be real big barriers. The city is looking for feedback and a draft plan is expected to be finished by the fall. The final plan is expected to help inform future decisions made by the city. And B.C. is investing $70 million to help older adults in the province stay independent. The province and the United Way partnering on the Better Home program to help seniors with their daily tasks. Last year, the program helped 12,000 B.C. seniors and the new additional funding will expand the program to nine more rural and remote communities. Sometimes the choice about whether to move from the house you've lived in or the apartment you lived in is based on much more, um, uh, you know, uh, much more than just your, your direct medical needs. And it's not a trip between staying there and long-term care, of course, but, uh, but the services provided by Better at Home make an enormous difference. Still ahead, Chilliwack's Car Craftsman. 32 Chef Cabrillet. 
pumping out custom rides since he was 16. What he's working on now, it could be his last. But first, what you need to know about record heat expected later this week. The village of Cache Creek has just issued a new evacuation order for about 20 properties due to flooding on the Bonaparte River. And the province is voicing its concern about this weekend's hot forecast and the implications of that. Emergency Management Minister Bowen Ma says the government is watching how a quick snow melt could increase the risk of both floods and fires. She says if there are elevated risks to human health, the province will send out an emergency alert but right now it's focused on the danger to individual communities. At this time, um, Environment Canada is not anticipating that heat dome uh, scenario, but elevated temperatures can still be a risk to human health. Um, we are able to uh, support communities in opening cooling centres um, as, as required. No heat dome, but certainly higher than normal temperatures are expected starting later this week. Christy Gordon has been watching all of it, and she joins us now with the timing. Christy. Thanks so much, Chris. Yeah, so it's not only the fact that we're going to see temperatures a good 5 to 15 degrees above seasonal for this time of year, uh, but it's also the fact that we're going to see it for a prolonged period of time. Now, keep in mind, nights are a little bit longer, so we have a little bit more cooling at night, but we'll likely see highs, or sorry, lows, down to only about 15 degrees. So that's some relief from the heat, but not a ton. So make sure you're preparing yourself to figure out new ways to give a little shade into your, uh, you know, your front window or something that gets a lot of sunshine. So find some ways that you can do that now's the time uh, because although this isn't necessarily um, deadly heat we are heading into that heat season now these are the temperatures we're expecting for metro vancouver near the water away from the water saturday sunday and monday we could be in the low 30s so we're talking about exceptional heat record-breaking heat as we head into our mother's day weekend now we had hundreds of lightning strikes in alberta not as much in bc but we are expecting that instability for one more day and it's going to make its way further north on Wednesday. So potentially into that BC Peace River area where it's very dry and northern Alberta. So all eyes on the sky when it comes to lightning strikes tomorrow. This is the fire danger rating in BC and Alberta and you can see it's high. As well as we head into that stretch of heat, we're going to see those lower areas in Alberta and BC start to change over from a low danger rating to a high. So we're really concerned about not only fires but also floods in the days to come, particularly into the weekend when that heat really surges. 18 to 22 degrees. We may see some patchy fog in the morning, but otherwise sunshine. Lots to look forward to, but definitely make sure you're figuring out sunscreen and ways to keep yourself cool. Tonight's center windows weather window coming to you from Tofino. Shelly sharing this one with a nice sunset shot from last night. Chris. Definitely, definitely some beach time with a forecast like that. That's not, right. not the time you want to be in full pads, football pads. <laughs> Football training camps are not like they used to be, though. That's true. It used to be two-a-days. It was like boot camp plus. It's much lighter now on the players. They've learned over the years. Mm -hmm. don't, don't hurt all your players before the games actually start. And uh, Lions training camp starts this week in Kamloops. Gets really going on Sunday. And Vernon Adams will be the number one quarterback for the Lions because, of course, Nathan Rourke is now playing in the NFL. My job is to lock in. Like I said, get these guys the ball. Um win games and take on that pressure head on. Now if you remember Adams had to fill in when Rourke was injured last season and he did a pretty decent job for BC when he did that. 
sure did. Also, you could call him the Tin Man, a craftsman building cool cars since he was a teenager on This Is BC coming up. You sprint down hallways, I'm madly typing I know. last minute. I, I thought you would have done that before the show began. It's a quirk. It's, okay. ah, it's, a, it's a work in progress. Uh, actually, no, I, I understand that completely. Sure. Changing the show on the fly. <laughs> uh, North Vancouver's Connor Bedard is not officially a member of the Chicago Blackhawks. Not yet. That won't happen until they draft him first overall on June 28th in Nashville. But... Let's face it, he's a Chicago Blackhawk for all intents and purposes. And even though he hasn't been drafted yet, the moment the Blackhawks won the draft lottery last night, the moment it happened, people in Chicago started buying tickets like there was some magical Beatles reunion coming. In less than a day, the Chicago Blackhawks sold 1,200 season ticket packages. It might be more by now. That's worth about $5.2 million. This, even though... The Blackhawks GM, after he won the draft lottery last night, was careful not to say Connor Bedard's name. This, this draft, especially, you know, when you're talking about the top of the draft, is uh, full of, of elite talent. And so we're going to get that and we're going to be able to pick the player that, that we feel is best for us. And um, you know what? It's, you, 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 it's, it's nice when you're able to, to build around someone like, like we're going to get it with the first overall pick. And... Just luckily we have the opportunity, so it's, it's unbelievable. I love that. Someone like, you know, like someone good. <laughs> um, three BC teams play tomorrow in the quarterfinals of the Canadian Soccer Championship. Victoria's Pacific FC will host Burnaby's TSS Rovers, while the defending champion Vancouver Whitecaps are on the road against York FC. The two winners will meet in the semifinals. It's uh, an important competition for the team, obviously being a Canadian club and and being a trophy that we could win. Honestly, there's four co competitions that we played in this year, um, and one of our main goals was obviously winning the Canadian Championship again. BC Lions training camp gets going uh, this weekend in Kamloops, and uh, this year it'll feature a new number one quarterback. Nathan Rourke took his skills to Jacksonville, so Vernon Adams Jr., who replaced Rourke when he was hurt for part of last season, will get to begin this season in the Lions pilot seat. Adams Jr. looks over the top, loads up, takes it into the end zone, hanging in the air, touchdown Lions! And I'm glad to be here, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad to take on that pressure. My job is to lock in, like I said, get these guys the ball, um, win games, and take on that pressure head on. So, um, come on, let's go. That pressure Vernon Adams Jr. speaks about is more than just stepping up into the pocket. The Lions are now his team. Not only is it his job to throw touchdowns, he's also the football conductor when it comes to the orchestra level of excitement and enthusiasm for football fans here in BC. And he has big shoes to fill after the noise Nathan Rourke created last year before Rourke left the Lions in the offseason for the National Football League. I do feel like I, do. I need to show the fans and show everyone uh, we're still as good. You know what I'm saying? We still have a lot of the same pieces. Um, and as a quarterback, your job is to score points and win games. And um, I've done a pretty good job of that, you know, throughout my career. We are in a, in a better place today 
than what we were a year ago because of guys like Vernon being on our team and um, being more prepared, uh, being not thrown to the wolves, being here a week and all of a sudden going into the hostile places like Calgary and expecting us to win, which we did. Um, so he's more prepared. BC went 4-2 when Adams Jr. filled in during Nathan Rourke's injury hiatus. He tossed six TD passes and was only picked off once. It's the kind of steady production the Lions are expecting this season now that Adams is fully up to speed with the playbook and the team bonding session that he hosted last month. On his own dime, Vernon invited the Lions receiving core and some of BC's defensive backs for a self-dubbed Lions-Kings minicamp. They flew in last month for four or five days and um, we just, we bonded, man. And we had off the field activities where we had fun and then we got to work, you know what I'm saying? And I think the off the field activities, building those bonds and smiling and, and trusting each other off the field is gonna help you even more on the field down the road. Joe Cap, one of the greatest BC Lions ever, passed away yesterday at the age of 85 after suffering with Alzheimer's disease. He was a Lions quarterback from 61 to 66. That's when he left to join the Minnesota Vikings. During his time, he led BC to two Grey Cup appearances, losing in 63 but winning in 64. He was considered one of the toughest guys ever to play quarterback. He never shied away from a collision. He was Alliance GM briefly in 1990. During that time, he did sign Doug Flutie. He brought Flutie to the CFL. What an amazing character that, um, you know, the, the province of British Columbia and Canada was able to, um, you know, bring into our lives. If you think about all the things he did with this football team, 63-64, and then um, maybe the first guy to carry the Canadian flag on his back, proud Canadian Football League player, um, going to the NFL, had some success, had lots of success, Hollywood, yeah, just an amazing guy, which, you know, um, um, I think we are just all grateful that uh, we were able to uh, be a part of it. I love those old football photos. Steve. So good. That's great. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. What a life. Well, still ahead, a custom car builder creating what could be his final project. Next. This is BC is brought to you by Johnston Meyer Insurance Agencies Group. 50 years of trust in your community. Well, here's Jordan Armstrong now with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11. Jordan? Chris, another serial groper to tell you about. Coquitlam RCMP have just issued their own alert. Of course, we told you about the one in Vancouver at the top of the newscast. We'll have a picture of this latest suspect at 11. Also, the popular Old Town exhibit at the Royal BC Museum will reopen in July with some changes. It was closed in late 2021 as part of the NDP government's decolonization drive. At 11, we'll tell you what the exhibit will and will not feature when it comes back. Chris. Look forward to that. Thank you, Jordan. All right, Cliff Rich has a reputation for recreating classic hot rods, building car parts in his iconic tin shop. He's cranked out some beauties, but after 70 years, he might be ready to call it quits. Jay Durant shows us more on This Is B.C. I've made all the parts. I've got about 15 parts all going together here. Cliff Rich was just 16 when he built his first car and doesn't recall exactly what it was that put him on this lifelong journey. Don't know. Just because I've seen one going down the street and I liked it or something, I guess. Gas tank is all in, ready to, ready to go. He's been piecing together all kinds of automobiles long before he had a great garage. He fixed a lot of it on the dining room table, so that started many, many years ago. With the windshield right here, 
it's going to have a split. He's 86 now and won't be doing any more after he's finished modifying this 27 Model T Roadster. No, absolutely not. 32 Chef Cabriolet, Dodge Model T, 51 Willys. A long time ago, in between builds, he took an extended two and a half year adventure, riding motorbikes with a buddy to Panama, and then over to Tahiti and Australia, getting a little help along the way. They, they come around with their fish boat, lift our bikes onto the, onto the little skip, whatever kind of boat they had. Each car takes an average of five years to complete. There's been a lot of driving around looking for parts before the assembly and bodywork begins. Ah. That's my 51 willies. Some he keeps, most of them he's sold. Through nearly 60 years of marriage, Cliff and Heather make sure they do a little cruising in each one first. We have broke down a few times, which is an adventure, but um, we always get home in one piece. Soon Cliff's tin shop won't be nearly as busy. Another year to finish this one and that is it. No more builds. This is the last one. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Jay Durant, Global News. I don't know. That little glance over at his wife, maybe there's one more in him. Anyway, if you know someone who has a great story to tell and something you want to share with the rest of us, just email your ideas to Jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. Way to go, Cliff. A little twinkle in his eye made it seem like Well, if you've got that more. kind of talent, you there, can't be retired. Yeah. That's right. I mean, I'm sure <laughs> he's not going to lay the wrench down quite yet. Okay, last word on weather, quick. It's going to be hot. We're also keeping our eye on uh, thunderstorms potentially in the interior tomorrow. All right, we'll keep an eye on those. Thanks for watching, everyone. Have a great night.